0: How many of you overslept this morning? I want to be honest, I don't know why i put my hand up. I didn't, but I was up here earlier fixing the clock in the pulpit. I thought maybe, maybe I shouldn't do that. I'd get like two hours, Vince, you know, if I didn't fix that clock. And Joe Lane was walking right by me and he said, let me take care of it. I'll fix it for you. And I thought, no, that's all right, Joe. I'll take care of it. <laughs> Open your Bibles up to James chapter 4, fourth chapter of James's letter, page 1209, if you're using one of those few Bibles. For the past several months, we've been teaching in the Bible school here at Foothill, a course entitled Christianity and Pop Culture, Christianity and Pop Culture. And a number of you have taken advantage of that course. And from what I've been hearing from you, that it's really been a very profitable time. The issue that the instructor is addressing really is how Christianity relates to the movies, television, social media, music, those kinds of Kind of contemporary pop culture uh, manifestations and how does that intersect biblical Christianity and how are we to think about these things, how are we to make decisions with regard to the various entertainment opportunities that are available to us. Our culture and in particular our Christian culture is very undiscerning when it comes to entertainment, entertainment choices. We tend to just go along with the flow, and if the movie's popular or if the ratings are at a certain level and no higher, then we tend to be very undiscerning and sort of take in those kinds of things. And so this has been an excellent class, I think, to help people begin to work it through more biblically as to what they will take in through their eyes and their ears. But the issue of worldliness is not strictly confined to the issue of entertainment choices that is not the only place where worldliness manifests itself in fact the the problem of worldliness in the church has been a perennial problem it stretches all the way back to the time of the founding of the church and the apostles the text before us this morning was written to jewish christians a mere 20 years, a couple of decades after the founding of the church, and yet James finds it necessary to address the topic of worldliness in some very strong and some very straightforward language. I've entitled the message for us this morning, Worldly Churches, Worldly Churches, because worldliness is always an ever-present threat and danger to the people of God. There are many definitions of worldliness that one might choose from, and so I will add one more into the fray. Worldliness is fundamentally adopting as our own the values and the interests of a world that is living in rebellion against its creator. It is fundamentally adopting as our own the values and the interests of a world that is living in rebellion against its creator. Those interests, those values manifest themselves in so many ways. That's why worldliness is always a danger for the people of God. We are looking at the fourth chapter here in the book of James. And we have been learning how factionalism and disunity are threatening the people of God. This factionalism, this disunity is really a manifestation of outward worldliness. It is a result of worldliness in the church. Let me set a little context to help you get your brains engaged for the text before us this morning By taking you back to the beginning of chapter 3. Because it's there that James first exposes and confronts this issue of worldliness. And he begins in verse 1 with those who would be teachers in the church. And he says there, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. There were many, and there remain to this day, many who would be teachers in the church. Many who would want to stand in a place of authority and give instruction to the people of God. And James warns that there is great accountability that attaches to that position. And so be careful, be careful of taking to yourself that which God has not given to you. James transitions from that cautionary warning statement to the danger of the tongue and how the tongue itself can divide and devour the body of Christ. How the use of the tongue and our inability to control our tongue can literally scorch people. And so he drives us there to in humility the cross of Jesus Christ as our only hope to try to control two and a half ounces of trouble. You remember it? Last week, James goes on, and beginning in verse 13, in this continuing topic that he's developing here, to take up wisdom, the issue of wisdom. And in verse 13, he says, Who among you is wise and understanding? The idea behind that being that when we open our mouths, we have an assumption of wisdom. We're assuming we've got something to say that needs to be said and needs to be heard. There is that assumption of wisdom. And James says that real wisdom is manifest through our deeds. Whether we have worldly wisdom or godly wisdom will reveal itself in how we behave, how we respond. Worldly wisdom produces According to verse 16 of chapter three, discord and all sorts of evil things that when a person opens their mouth and outspews worldly wisdom, it leads to disruption, disunity, restlessness among the people of God. In contrast, when the mouth is opened with godly wisdom, it produces righteousness because it is a peace. Loving wisdom. Verses 17 and 18. It is a peace loving wisdom. That produces righteousness. Peace loving people he says. In kind of a proverbial way. Verse 18. Sow a seed the results in a harvest. Of God honoring righteousness. In contrast to that. Turning all the way back to. Chapter 1 and verse 20. Angry men do not produce the righteousness of God. Angry men who spew forth angry speech tear and disrupt the body of Christ and do not produce righteousness. So this morning, continuing to develop his argument here in chapter 4, he picks up on the discussion of worldliness. You see that, by the way, in verse 4, the end of the verse, where he says, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world, to be a friend of the world, to be a worldly person. And this discussion of worldliness is a discussion of unity. Ultimately, a discussion of unity. And so he will give us this morning three marks of a worldly church so that we might, by God's grace, identify and avoid worldliness here at Foothill. In this chapter four, the first three verses, he gives us three marks of a worldly church so that we might, by God's grace, identify it and avoid it here at Foothill. Let's take a look at the text. James chapter four and in beginning in verse one. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasure. Three marks of a worldly church. Number one, worldly churches are quarrelsome churches. Worldly churches are quarrelsome. They're quarrelsome. Verses one and two. James attacks the problem here head on. He says that, that you have a chronic problem of disunity. And it manifests itself in quarrels and conflicts. Notice the plural. Quarrels, plural. Conflicts, plural. Not once in a while, but all the time. It's what manifests itself. It's what characterizes the church. It is a church that is chronically quarreling with one another. Chronically having conflicts with one another. These are strong terms that James uses here, very strong terms that, that describe a situation in a church that is that is deadly and dangerous. Even his construction of the way he asks the question in the Greek is is informative in terms of the depth of the problem. Literally, he says from from where the hostilities and from where the conflicts From where the hostilities, uh, the protracted state of hostility, the Cold War, as it were. From where comes this Cold War that characterizes your congregation? From where comes the conflicts, the, the specific outbreaks of hostility when the Cold War goes hot, the flashpoints that occur? Where does this all come from? This interesting combination of words, by the way, here, quarrels and conflicts was used in secular Greek to refer to political or national conflicts. It was figuratively used to refer, to refer to feuds, to conflicts, to open hostilities between individuals or or groups of people. We might actually translate it that way. From where come the feuding among you and the fights? Where do they come from? Together, these, these terms, they, they lend the idea that there is a factional bickering going on among the people of God. There are personal animosities occurring in the church. And that this factional bickering, these personal animosities are leading to ecclesiastical strife. The, the church is being characterized as a war zone. Sometimes the problems just sort of smolder under the surface. Kind of like a forest fire that is still burning underneath a, a layer of pine needles. And then just given the right conditions, it, it flashes forth and, and erupts into flame and begins to consume all that's around it. In the case of James, that eruption comes through the human tongue as it bubbles forth its animosities and, and scorches and consumes Those who are on the receiving end of its filth. Let me ask you a question. How many of you have ever experienced a church in conflict? How many of you have ever been part of a church in conflict? It is an ugly scene. It is an ugly scene. People say things that you would not believe possible for Christian people to say. It just spews out of them. And gets all over whoever happens to be in the way. By the way, these kinds of, of militaristic terminology for for conflict we use in our own culture when it comes to political discourse, don't we? We speak in our own language politically about destroying our political enemies. We talk about waging an advertising war. We talk about an air campaign and a a ground campaign as we will undo our political opposition. I think it's inherent among sinful people vying for power to think in terms and even act in terms of violence. It is the nature of the unredeemed nature that spews itself out unless moderated by the Spirit of God. The extent of the hostilities here, the quarreling here is really outrageous, shocking. Notice what James says in verse 2. You lust and you do not have, so you commit, what? Murder. You murder Because you cannot get what you want. You fight. You quarrel. You wage war. You're literally willing to murder someone. Does James actually mean that, that people were murdering each other in the church? Is that what he's saying? That the church would get together in a business meeting and somebody would kill somebody else? Is that really what's going on? Maybe. Maybe I, I don't think so. The reason I don't think so is because he passes over it so quickly. But I don't think we in the same way should should minimize the level of conflict and violence that he's addressing. I've been to some rough business meetings in my decades as a Christian. I've been to some meetings where the shouting begins where the name-calling happens, where the, where the language just continues to escalate and get more and more vitriolic. Violence is in the eyes. I've been there. I've seen it. And it's not a pretty sight. Reminds me of a church sign one time that, that read today's sermon. You know those signs they put out front of the church where they put the sermon title? Was a sign that says today's sermon: What is hell like? Question mark. That underneath the sermon title were these words: Church business meeting tonight. <laughs> right? That's what happens when uh, you don't have a proofreader. <laughs> Rough business meetings. I've been there. I've been in them. They can get out of control. I am personally familiar with a church business meeting that so erupted in violence that police had to be called to separate the factions in the church before it literally came to physical blows of violence. That, by the way, was a a Bible-teaching church. A Bible-teaching church full of Christian people. But I've never heard of anyone murdering somebody else in a church setting. So I think it's best to understand what James is referring to here is that the inner attitude of hatred that is the equivalent morally of murder. It is that which lights the fuse and leads to the outward act of murder. James half brother Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter five verses twenty one and twenty two. He said there, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever shall say to his brother, Rakah, or good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever shall say, you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Or as John says in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. It's a serious matter. It is a very, very serious matter. Quarreling Churches are evangelism killers. You understand that? Quarreling churches are evangelism killers. The quarrel never stays inside the four walls, it always spills out to the community. The unbelievers are intimately aware of what is going on in the church of Jesus Christ. And when Christian people begin to scrap with one another and it becomes escalated and escalated to the point where it's now an open hostility. The whole community knows that. There is an atmosphere that is given off in a fellowship like that. In fact, according to verse 6 of chapter 3, it is the atmosphere of hell. You can walk in and there's a certain smell of sulfur in the air. When you walk into a church, it's an open hostility. My friends, visitors can smell it. And they want no part of it. No part at all. I remember when Carol and I first moved here to California 20 years ago. We visited a church. It was the very first church we visited here in Southern California. We walked in, we were greeted by people and they were friendly to us and ushered us to a Sunday school class and all seemed to be well. There was good Bible teaching going on in the Sunday school class and finished the class and came up to the to the worship center for the for the main worship service. And we sat down and we could feel it. We could feel it. The pastor had recently stepped down And it was obvious in the congregation that half wanted him gone and half didn't. Nothing was said, but you could feel it. You could smell it in the congregation. The end of the hour, we got up, collected our children and left and never came back. Never came back. Because you know why? I didn't want to try to figure out who was right and who was wrong. I'd rather go to a place where the people of God are in love with one another because they're in love with Christ. Quarreling churches are evangelism killers. And worldly churches are quarrelsome churches. Second mark of a worldly church is that they are carnal. They are carnal. That is, they are fleshly. Worldly churches are carnal churches. Worldly churches are fleshly churches. Again, verses 1 and 2. James opens up here, doesn't he, by by asking this question. What is the source of the hostilities among you? Where does it come from? From whence come this open warfare? And he answers the question, verse 1. He answers it by, by locating it in a hedonistic spirit that is waging war inside the believer. You see, at the end of the verse, Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? The word pleasures, hedone, in the Greek, we get the English word hedonism from this word. Hedonism. Sensual pleasure, gratification desire or lust a hedonistic approach where do the wars in the church come from they come from the members who are given over to hedonism it is the strong desire in this context of self-love that expresses itself in a clamoring after recognition within the congregation again back to chapter 3 and verse 1 let not many of you become teachers. There is a clamoring going on. I want to be in a place of preeminence and I'm lusting after it. It is the gratification that I desire and I will not stop until I get it. James says they're lusting over it. They're envious for it. By the way, the seem. The same word is used or the noun version of the word is used in chapter 3, verses 14 and 16 to speak of jealousy. To speak of jealousy. They're lusting after it. They're envious for it. They are, they are jealous of a position that someone else holds in the fellowship that they don't hold. There is a, there's a hotness. There is an intensity to their desire to have this. But they're frustrated because they can't have it. It's interesting. Three times, James says, you're frustrated because you can't have what you want. Verse two, you're envious and cannot obtain. The end of verse two, you do not have. Verse three, you ask and do not receive. So you can just sense this growing, consuming desire. I must have this position of preeminence and authority within the church. And yet it is eluding me. As we noted back in chapter one, the progression of sin, we think, we desire, we decide and we do. It begins by thinking I deserve a position of leadership. I belong in a position of authority in this church. I've got something to say that they need to hear. And then that thinking begins to build into a desire that goes unfulfilled. And as it goes unfulfilled, it gets deeper and stronger and more passionately grips your soul. Until you decide to do something about it. I will seize it. If it cannot be given to me, if it will not be given to me, I will seize it the authority and so i will go after it in a worldly fashion chapter 3 the results in disorder verse 16 and every kind of imaginable evil up to and including according to chapter 4 verse 2 murder murder if i can't have what i want then you can't have it either bang you're dead My friends, they are operating in the flesh. This is a fleshly response. This is a carnal response. This is an earthly response, verse 15. Earthly, natural, or carnal. It's even demonic. It's demonic. By the way, this this kind of problem in the church is not unique to the churches that James is writing to. Paul addresses a, a similar problem in Corinth, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, page 1142, you can see that that is the fundamental problem in the church at Corinth as well. A church, by the way, that is uniquely gifted among the apostolically planted churches. No church is wealthier in terms of material wealth or spiritual giftedness in the church at Corinth, and yet it is a worldly church. First Corinthians chapter three. Beginning of verse one, Paul says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, literally carnal, as to babes in Christ, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. Verse three, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Paul puts his finger right on it. Carnal behavior, worldly behavior, demonic behavior, manifesting itself in jealousy and strife. The people of God have always been susceptible to this kind of sin, this worldly wisdom infiltrating the church in which people seek to to seize authority and take it to themselves by worldly methods, by, by those things that work in the business world, by politicking, by personal destruction of their enemies, by the use of of their tongue to slander, to gossip, to divide. Unspiritual people lusting after leadership and power. My friends, we should never kid ourselves. We should never kid ourselves to think that we are somehow engaging in the noble fight of faith. That somehow what it really is about is that we're fighting for the truth. You see, I'm acting like this in the body because I'm fighting for the truth. And all of these people, they're apostatizing from the truth. And I must remain true to the course. Don't kid yourself. Don't give yourself so much credit. Don't assume your motives are so noble and righteous and good. It's highly unlikely. When we become involved in contentions in the church, it is far more likely it's because of our unmet desires, our lusts, that lead us to fight. It is our passion for power. James says they're like soldiers. They're like soldiers planning and carrying out a military campaign that drive us to use our mouths in the service of hell. They wage war, he says. They wage war in our members. Jim Burke, a very fine book that he wrote, the title of which just eluded me. But if you go to the bookstore, I think we have some, Vince. Go and look for the book by Jim Burke. What's the name of it? Made into his image, thank you. It's always important to have somebody in the front row who can bail you out. <laughs> Made into his image, Jim he wrote something in that book that I think is just really, really significant. And it's applicable to this discussion here. He says there are only two choices on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. And that is a very, very profound statement. There are only two choices on the shelf, my friends. It is pleasing God, or it is pleasing self. Churches seldom split over theology. Seldom. Seldom is it a theological issue that divides the people of God. Typically, they split over raw politics. It is raw politics. Behind the issue that supposedly has caused the split lies the struggle for who's in charge. Who is going to be in charge? Almost 20 years ago now, there was a merger between Foothill Baptist Church and Upland Bible Church. By the grace of God, I had the privilege of being part of one of the two merger study teams. Two small groups of men drawn out of the leadership of the two churches. We met together every week for nine months to hammer out a merger agreement. Within the the first few weeks, we were able to discern that we had doctrinal alignment in substantially all points. That the doctrinal statements of the two churches were virtually identical. And yet we had to go on meeting together for month after month after month. And many times along the way, it appeared like the merger would not be able to go through. It was on life support many times. I can remember coming home one night after a meeting that happened on a Sunday evening and telling my wife, it's over, it's done, it's dead. Yet God in his grace breathed life back into it again. What was it that took so long? Why did it take nine months To hammer out a merger agreement between two churches whose doctrinal statements were almost identical. Because the issue of who's in charge had to be resolved. And it couldn't be wallpapered over. It was a question of church government. What would be the role of the elders? What would be the role of the congregation? And how do they intersect one another? Or to put it more directly, who pulls the levers, who pushes the buttons? How does it work out, practically speaking? It is by the grace of God that we are soon to celebrate our 20th anniversary of a merger. My friends, church mergers don't work. You do any research, they'll tell you that church mergers typically do not work. And the reason they do not work is because people don't take the time to resolve that issue of who's in charge. I can remember a few years after the merger, we were approached by some representatives of a couple of Baptist churches in a community near ours. And they were planning on a merger together. Pastor Jerry said to them, he said, go slow. Go slow. Take your time. Talk it all through. Oh, no, we don't have to worry about that. We're both Baptists. (laughs) It didn't last long. It did not last long. It's very hard. It is a very hard thing to do. To put together a church merger. You have to work out the issues up front. You know, for the benefit of those who are relatively new here at Foothill, it's, it's probably worth making a digression here for a few minutes and talking about the process by which a man becomes an elder here at Foothill Bible Church. Maybe, maybe your church background, the tradition that you come from, is a, is a little bit different than that which you find here. So you you hear about elders, and, and if you've been here for any while, you come to understand that the elders actually have a significant level of authority and spiritual oversight among the congregation. So how does somebody become an elder? Is it just, you know, if you give enough money, you get to be an elder? Is that what the deal is? Or maybe if you just hang out with the right people, you get noticed and you become an elder. Or maybe what you do is you conduct a little political campaign on the side and you get a few delegates and and you begin to build a groundswell of support and, and so there you get put forward to be elder. All of those methods, by the way, to the shame of the people of God, have been and are used to elevate people into leadership. So how do you become an elder here or a deacon at Foothill Bible Church? Let me walk you through the process. Periodically, the elders take the time to to look over the congregation and to evaluate the men who are giving leadership within the congregation. We have a very candid, a very, very frank discussion about the relative strengths and weaknesses of these men. And we're looking for men who are, who are shepherding, who have a shepherd's heart, who are involved in oversight ministries, spiritually oversight ministries within the people of God. And they have no title. No title at all. Because, see, you don't become a shepherd by receiving a title. By being given an office of shepherd. That doesn't make you a shepherd any more than getting on an airplane and flying to India makes you a missionary. Nothing magical happens on the airplane. Nothing magical happens by being given the title of an elder. One must be a shepherd in his heart and that will manifest itself whether there's any title involved or not. So we look for those men who are already doing the work. We seek to identify them. And then we want to come alongside them and and mentor them to excel still more. So after a very candid discussion of their relative strengths and weaknesses, upon the unanimous consent of the elders, we will then approach that individual and ask them, would you like to make application to the elder or deacon training program? Are you interested? Do you do you desire, Paul says 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, that a man must desire to be an overseer? Is this your heart's desire? Is this what we're seeing? This is what we think we see. Is this indeed deep in your heart? And if so, are you willing to make application to the training program? If they say yes, they're handed a 23 question application that asks some very, very intrusive questions about their life. It probes them deeply. There are no true false questions among the 23, none that can be answered in one sentence. They require a man to think deeply, to process with his family and before the Lord, and then to respond with written answers. The purpose of this written application questionnaire is to seek to confirm what we think we already know. We have observed his life, we've observed his ministry, at least in certain contexts, and so we think we know something about him, and so we want to probe deeper to confirm what we think we know. As part of that process, we ask for references. We ask that he supply us with three references, at least one of which is in a business context. We want to talk to his boss, or if he's a boss, we want to talk to his employees. We want to find out how he conducts himself outside the church because what we think we see inside the church, is that, what, is that true outside the church? And Paul says again, First Timothy 3, that a man's reputation outside the church must comport with godliness so we ask for three references and we contact those references and we we tell them why we're contacting them and we interview them we dialogue with them about this individual and then when we finish asking each one we ask them to give us another reference that we can talk to and the reason we do that is because you and i both know that when you're asked to give references you always give what you give your best references so we we take it a step deeper Ask the reference for a reference. Is there anybody else that you can give us their name and phone number who knows such and such a person? And that might be able to help us to know them as well. On receipt of the completed reference checking, the nominating committee meets to review the application and the references. The nominating committee is comprised of men and women drawn from the body. They meet together. They review the application. They review, actually, they're the ones doing the reference checking. And they all come back together and they review what they've learned. And again, it's for the purpose of, of trying to verify what we think we already know. And then we ask the man and his wife to come in for an interview. And so in they come. And it doesn't matter how many times you tell them, it's okay. It's okay. We're all friends. They're exceedingly nervous. They come and they sit. And we probe them. We ask questions about the questions they answered. What do you mean by this? Give us an example. Please clarify this. The end of that interview process, as a couple, we we send the wife out of the room and we interview the man by himself. Then we send him out and we interview the wife by herself, just seeking to test and cross-check and make sure that what we think we know is really true. I can remember years and years ago, before this whole process was put in place, that a certain individual had been nominated to be a deacon. So we arrived at the annual business meeting when the congregation was going to affirm them as a deacon, and we, we passed out the ballots with their name on it. I happened to be sitting at the table with him and his wife. His wife got the ballot and she looked at it and she said, Oh, I didn't know you were up for deacon. I thought, Oh, no. Oh, no. How could this be? How could somebody be up for a, a position of significant spiritual leadership and oversight within the congregation and his wife doesn't even know? What does it say about what either he thinks about this Responsibility or what their marriage is like. Oof. So we interview the wife separately and make sure. Do you know why you're here? <laughs> <laughs> Are you doing this just because you want to be a dutiful Christian woman and you think that's what you're supposed to do? Honey, I'll support you whatever you want. I'll do it. Because there's significant sacrifice involved. The whole family will make very significant sacrifices over the years. And so we have to know, are you in this together? Do you sense God's call on your husband's life? I was pleased to tell you that this whole process is really, really encouraging. To to hear the reference checks on your leadership, my friends, it would do your heart good. They are men. They are not perfect men, but they are, they are men of integrity. What you see is who they really are in the various contexts of life. I love being part of that process. Well, upon the unanimous ap- agreement of the nominating committee, that candidate is then in, enters into the elder or deacon training program. It's a one-to-two-year training program in which they then sit with the elders or the deacons. And they participate in in the meetings and the discussions. And And the idea here is to see how they operate in consensus environments because we don't make any decision that we haven't unanimously agreed to. We operate in full consensus. And the men who lead this congregation, they are not rubber stamps. I've been in some elder meetings when it gets kind of testy. And then we have to stop and pray and repent and and ask forgiveness for having spoken so sharply because we feel so deeply about something. They're spiritual men. And they're able to operate in a way, in an environment in which they don't always get their own way. None of us do. And some people can't live like that. Some people have to win. If they can't win, they don't want to play. They can't defer. They don't know how to defer. If you can't defer, you have no place in the leadership among God's people. No place at all. So they enter into this training program. Materials to read, things to do. They're periodically evaluated. It's a two-way evaluation as to their suitability, how they think they're doing. Upon successful completion of the training they come before the congregation in an annual meeting and they are presented wholeheartedly to be affirmed by you and I can just praise God that a year ago when the elders were reaffirmed again at a business meeting it was unanimous unanimous That's unheard of you know that right It's unheard of to have a unanimous affirmation of the leadership of a church it just doesn't happen and yet, by the grace of God, it happened here last year. We presently have two men who have made application to the elder training program. Pray for them. Pray for them. They're soon to sit for their interviews, and I know they're both very nervous. So pray for them. Worldly churches. Worldly churches are quarrelsome churches, mark number one. Mark number two, worldly churches are carnal churches, fleshly churches. Mark number three, worldly churches are prayerless. Worldly churches are prayerless, verses two and three. You do not have, end of verse two, because you do not what? Ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. The context here is still about leadership in the church. And James says that there are two reasons why that people are frustrated here with their inability to ascend to real leadership. Two reasons why their their desires are being frustrated. And both of them have to do with a lack of biblical prayer. Now, two reasons. I think he's addressing two different groups of people. One group doesn't pray, another group prays but prays wrongly. And in both cases, James says, You do not get what you want because you're going after it in the wrong way, you are prayerless. They desire recognition as leadership in the church. And that requires wisdom, according to chapter 3, verses 13 and following. And this commodity is in short supply. Short supply. Why? Because they've failed to ask for it. The end of the verse, 2. They're lacking it because they don't ask for it. Chapter 1, verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask who? God. And he will supply. They've been attempting to satisfy their desire through their own efforts. And Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15 and verse 5. Is there failure to pray? To seek from God? that which God gives, and instead to go after it on their own. One commentator said it this way, instead of wrestling with God, they wrangle bitterly with men. Instead of wrestling with God, they wrangle bitterly with men. But there's another group that's being frustrated in their desire for leadership as well. They ask and don't get it either. And the reason they don't get it is because they're asking with the wrong motives, James says, so that they may spend it on their own pleasures. These people do pray. But they've abandoned the true purpose and promise of prayer. They're asking for the wrong motives. Kakos, bad, evil motives. What are those evil motives? They want leadership so that they may consume it. End of the verse. They may spend it on their pleasures. They may consume it. Spoken of, same word used of the prodigal son, by the way, Luke 15 and verse 14. He consumed his father's estate. These people want to consume leadership. Leadership. What they, what they want is they want to be elevated into a place of leadership so that they can use that position to satisfy their own pleasures. Same word that we get, hedonism. Shows up again. It is their hedonistic desire to consume that causes God to frustrate their prayers for leadership. They're essentially asking God to install them in leadership And have the rest of the congregation acknowledge them as leaders. And yet they still want to hang on to worldly wisdom. They fail to pray for godly wisdom. They don't want a life that's a a role model for others to follow. Instead, they want their own self-aggrandizement. What kind of prayer will God answer with regard to those seeking or holding leadership? Maybe God has put it in your heart. You're thinking, I would like to be a leader among the people of God. That thought is in your mind. You need to pray. And what kind of prayer should you pray? Should you pray, God, please elevate me among the people so that they would recognize how important I am. So they would see that when I open my mouth, And things come out that it's necessary for them to hear those things. That they would follow me around and give me places of honor at the banquet. That everybody would recognize my face, my picture, my name. That I'd be able to stand behind the pulpit and be thought a man of God. No, not at all, my friends. If there's leadership desires in your heart, then you pray. You pray that God would make you, verse 17, chapter 4, a peace loving man. That He would make you peaceable, gentle, reasonable, or willing to yield. That He would make you full of mercy and good fruits. That it would cause you to be loyal and sincere. You pray that God would transform your character into the character of Christ. God desires to fulfill those kind of prayers. God delights in fulfilling those kind of prayers. If we pray anything according to his will, he hears us. God hears those kind of prayers. And for those who are already in leadership, how shall we pray? How shall we pray for ourselves? Shall we pray that people come around to our way of thinking? Shall we pray that people honor us as we are due to be honored? Shall we pray that our authority would be well-received? I think not. I think God would have the elders of this church, the deacons of this church, pray that we would be peaceable men, peace-loving men, that we would be gentle men, that we would be men able to yield, full of mercy and good deeds, that we would be peaceful men who sow a seed whose fruit is righteousness among the people of God. And that's a prayer he delights in answering. Bow with me, please. Oh, Lord, the book of James doesn't Offer us any escape. It's like being in the ring with a heavyweight prize fighter. Stalking us. Cutting the ring and forcing us into the corner. Then pummeling us. Oh Lord, that's what your word does. It, it rips our hearts open. It reveals the depth of the depravity that resides within There's none, O Lord, who can can read this letter and think seriously on what James has said and not come away feeling exposed and vulnerable. O Lord, we don't like that. Because we have such an inflated view of ourselves. We're so quick to attribute to ourselves the best of motives and the worst to everyone else. And yet, O Lord, in order to walk in godliness, we must see ourselves as you see us. Because that's why Christ came. He came to die in our place, to cleanse us of our sin, to atone for our wickedness, to transform us by His life residing within us through His Holy Spirit. And so, our Father, as we contemplate what we have heard these last three weeks, we pray that it would drive us to the cross of Christ, where there is plenty of grace, abundant grace, free-flowing grace. O Lord, let us come and be washed in the fountain of your grace Let us recognize that your love for us does not vary. That you're not angry with us today, O Lord. But your face smiles upon us because we are clothed with Christ. And O Lord, let us use, let us take advantage of the exposure that we have felt to turn away from wickedness and flee back to the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.